we're looking at the book of Leviticus, and we're looking at it for a number of reasons. Uh, but one of the primary ones is because no one ever looks at it. And, um, and if we're to engage God's word, uh, it's probably a dangerous enterprise to be very selective about that. Um, and only accept the parts that we find tasteful and easy to understand. We, we need to engage all of it. And um, uh, just kind of even beforehand, two guys, uh, this is my way of covering all the sermon material I'm about to steal. Instead of quoting you every time I quote them, um, Les Newsom and Jeff Ferguson are two good friends of mine who really helped me understand how to kind of walk through and talk through Leviticus. And tonight what we're going to do, uh, the first seven chapters of Leviticus are about these rituals that t- are made to take place in the tabernacle. And you've got to envision where Israel is at this moment in their history. They've just come out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. We said this last week. They're in the wilderness. There's this promise of this land, the promised land, that they're moving towards. It's going to be a long time before they get there. And God says, as you move there, I do want you to begin to understand what it means that you're my people. And so what he does is in the book of Exodus at the end, he gives them instructions for this tent called the tabernacle. And he says, wherever you go, you set up this tent in the middle of your camp, and that tent will signify that I am with you. And what he's doing in the book of Leviticus, he's saying, and now I want certain rituals to take place in that tent. In the center of of this people group, there's this tent, and these rituals take place. And all these rituals, I'm teaching you about what it means that I am your God, and you are my people. And you may think that the concept of ritual is this archaic or primitive term, right? It sounds like it when we use that word. We're in the modern world. Rituals aren't a part of who we are. Um, and we read, what, like, what does that have to do with reality for me today? What does that have to do with learning about God? But before we even read the text, I want, to, I want you to consider this point. I would argue that, in fact, all of life is ritual. Uh, I actually think you probably, it would take you time to figure out a part of your life that's not primarily ritualistic. I don't think right now off the top of your head you can think of anything in your life that is not ritual in nature. The term we use today that's less archaic and less religious sounding is called habit, right? But rituals define and structure reality for us. See if they do not structure the world for you. What is the weak? It's a ritual, is it not? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. There's a structure set in place. And that structure tells you what to do and when, doesn't it? You do certain things on Monday through Friday and different things on Saturday and Sunday. And that structure is reality for you. That's a ritual. What is class attendance? It's a ritual. What is brushing your teeth? It's ritual. What is clothing yourself? It's ritual. These are habitual patterns that you put on. And walk through every single day, every single week, every single month. The entire year is ritual in nature, right? And what these patterns do and these habits do is they shape who you are, right? You've engaged in this ritual of going to sleep and waking up on Stanford's campus and attending classes here. And you know what? You are more of a Stanford-type person now than you were before you engaged that ritual. Has it not shaped you and come to identify you more and more as you participate in that ritual? Absolutely it has. Ritual is actually the fabric of reality and the fabric of identity. Uh, Dating is a ritual. Weddings are ritual. The Greek system is a perfect picture of rituals. You go, you introduce yourself to people, you go through the initiation rites, you go through (coughs) hazing or don't go through hazing. 
Um, and what happens on the other end? Your identity has been transformed by rituals, has it not? You now have a sisterhood or a brotherhood to which you closely identify with. How do you identify with them? Through ritual. It wasn't until you went through the rituals that your identity has been changed. Right? What God is doing here is something that we do every single day. He's searing, by way of ritual, into the minds and the hearts of Israelites the structure of reality and the structure of relationship with Him so that He can confirm and grow their identity in Him. The primary statement... Um, that he is exploding kind of in their minds and, and ritualizing in their minds is what does it mean that I am your God and you are my people? And last week we looked at chapter 1. You have to know chapter 1. It sets up chapters 2 and 3. And chapter 1 is this thing called the burnt offering. And the burnt offering is this gruesome task that would, that would happen every morning and evening in the center of the camp. And it's where all this, where an animal is killed, all this blood is poured out everywhere and the animal is consumed wholly. Uh, on the altar. It's burned up. And when you turn to the New Testament, what you read, and you actually find glimmers of this all throughout the Old Testament, but Hebrews 9 and 10 is the clearest place where God says, those weren't realities, those were shadows, but the reality has come in Jesus. What I wanted you to see in the bull dying at the altar and the sheep dying at the altar was not that somehow your sins were atoned for by a farm animal. That doesn't make any sense. God's saying that's ridiculous. He actually agrees with us on that. But what he is saying is it was a sign. It was a ritual that pointed you towards Jesus so that when he came and did that, when the reality came, you would understand it. And that sets actually up the second two rituals we're going to look at tonight, um, the laws that are called the grain offering and the peace offering. And we can't go through all the details of them, but I've brought out for you in here um, the, the, the kind of significant points of the text. I'm going to read through them, and then we'll look at them. So this is God explaining rituals for shaping their understanding of how they relate to Him and what the world is like. When anyone brings a grain offering or bread offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour. He shall pour, pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. And he shall take from it a handful of fine fine flour and oil and all of its frankincense. And the priest shall burn this as a memorial portion on the altar, a food offering that gives a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It's most... It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. No grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey as a food offering to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits, you may bring them to the Lord, but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. You shall season all of your grain offerings instead with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. All your offerings shall offer salt. If you offer a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer for the grain offering of your first fruits fresh ears, roasted with the fire, crushed new grain, and you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering. And the priest shall burn as its memorial portion some of the crushed grain and some of the oil with all of its frankincense. It's a food offering to the Lord. Chapter 3 is this offering called the peace offering. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering as a food offering to the Lord, 
He shall offer the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that's on the entrails and the two kidneys and the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove from the kidneys. Then Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade. And God has decided to preserve these rituals the writing of them for thousands of years so that we can read them tonight because he thinks they're important. So let's pray that they will become important to us. Father God, we thank you for even the confusing parts of the Bible and we know that you have to illuminate truth for us. So as we consider it, as I talk about it, dear God, I pray that your spirit would tend to our hearts, that we would see what we are to learn and what it means to be your people. Be with us, Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, so several years ago, this is my little sister is, how old is she now? 27. And she was in college. So about six years ago now, she was dating, uh, Scott Greenwood, who's now her husband in the process of their dating. Uh, they'd been out several times. They've enjoyed each other's company. They've become exclusive at this point. Um, Scott, maybe you've been in this moment where he decides that there's a certain word I need to throw into kind of the mix of this relationship. And uh, maybe you've been there where it's been premeditated or maybe it's been spontaneous for you, but he decides on this certain date he's going to drop the L word. And uh, it's a big moment. And uh, this is one of my proudest moments of my little sister. At the end of the date, Scott's telling uh, little Melissa, he's like, you know, Melissa, I've really enjoyed, you know, you've become one of my best friends. And then he kind of stutters over and he's like, I really... I really think I love you. And uh, little Melissa is amazing. She goes, really? <laughs> and Scott doesn't know what to do. It's funny because my sister's a cheerleader. She's this tall. Scott is, was a first-team All-State offensive lineman, huge uh, rugby player, like 320-something pounds. And he's like, he doesn't know what to do at this moment. And Scott's like, yeah. <laughs> And she goes, well, do you know what I hear when you say that word? At which point it becomes abundantly clear that Scott doesn't know what she hears when he says that word. And he's like, what? And she says, this is what I hear when you say that. So be careful when you say that. What I hear is, I want to always be with you. I want to marry you. I want to have children with you. I want to change dirty diapers at 2 a.m. in the morning with you. That's what I heard. I heard I want to drive your son to T-ball. I heard I want us to go on college trips with our children together. I heard I want to go to our college, edu- our, our, our college children's graduation together. And then we want to live in the same house when we're really old and have grandkids and then die together. When you said that word, that's what I heard. Is that what you meant? It's <laughs> God's like... It's amazing. He stuck with her. I still think she's right, but that's another conversation. Um, he's like, well, and he just kind of backs off a little bit wisely. So he's like, I just really like being with you. And he's like, she's like, okay, well, let's just stay right there for the time being. <laughs> and I say that for this point, to make this point. What she is actually recognizing in the way she talks through that is that relationships are more than just sentimentality. They have structure to them. 
All, we, we call it expectations at time, right? Your expectations within friendships or romantic relationships are nothing more than what you think the structure of a relationship should be, how people should behave or not behave, what blessings you should have the right to enjoy or demand from the other person or offer to the other person. And what she's saying is, Scott, you can't just say things, right? This isn't just sentimentality we're dealing with here. If we're going to have a real relationship, there is structure to it. So consider what your words mean with regard to structure, right? Christianity is not just sentimentality. You may identify yourself, maybe you don't identify yourself, but maybe you do identify yourself as a Christian. And what that is for you is primarily this warm fuzzy that you're a spiritual person. That's not what Christianity is, if that's what it means to you. It is a relationship. And like all relationships, it has structure. What Christianity is, the prize of Christianity is actually God Himself. It's rich fellowship with God and His people. And I want to suggest that actually probably the greatest frustration we experience comes from not understanding the structure or the right order of our relationship with God. In some ways, what Leviticus 1-3 through offers us is a DTR from God. He's saying, if you're in a relationship with me, this is what it looks like. He's defining the relationship. I know. I have no idea. No, is DTR dated now? Is that the no. define the relationship talk? Yes. No. <laughs> Trying to be relevant, y'all. Like use the language of the young people. Um, see if this isn't true of you. If you identify as a Christian, or if you're not a Christian, I'll venture to guess that some of this phenomenon maybe is a source of frustration or an obstacle to you. And the first one is this. Maybe what you experience, and maybe this is your frustration, is Christianity feels like it's this devotion, right? This commitment, but it has no intimacy or no sweetness or joy to it, right? It's about this behavior or this rule-keeping that you embrace, and that's what it means to be a Christian. There are these laws or these rules about... Um, the relationship, and if you're not a Christian, maybe that's what turns you off. That's your perception of it. It's this, it's this behavior thing and this rule thing. It's about a, a commitment to kind of living a different life. It's about devoting yourself to a different life, uh, certain moral systems, certain religious observances. And if you're a Christian, you're, you're, and that's the way you approach it, you're frustrated, right? You're constantly uh, taking the temperature of your spiritual relationship, and, and, and the way you assess it is by how well you're doing morally and in spiritual practices, right? And so it's about this devotion, and you keep asking the question, man, I'm devoted enough, and this is, I got a Christianity. This is where anytime someone asks you how you're doing, your response is very rarely about Jesus. It's always about, I got it. And you have this list of I got us, right? These things you have to do better, because your Christianity is about commitment or devotion. And if you're a non-Christian, you see that, and you're like, I'm considering the screen Christianity, but that aspect of it is one of the things that kind of turns me off, Right? And, and if, if Christianity is devotion without this sweet intimacy, it can go one of two ways. Either, you're either living life radically insecure, constantly wondering about your spiritual state and things between you and God, because things between you and God are predicated upon how well you're performing. So you could be all about kind of law-keeping and moralism and be wildly insecure. On the other hand, you become very righteous, self-righteous, Right? where you look down on others because in your own eyes you're actually doing really well in terms of your devotion. But there's no fire. 
in your soul. And that, that rule-keeping is not matched with rich connection to God. So maybe you find yourself in this, that Christianity has become devotion without kind of any intimacy. But on the other hand, maybe that's not where you find yourself. Maybe you find yourself that Christianity is it's actually intimacy with no devotion. Right? It's about connection with God. Experiencing connection with God. You love the experience of intimacy. But, when you see that relating to God actually does require devotion and commitment, right? You shudder at it, right? There are parts of the Bible you don't like, so you you ignore the things God calls you to. Maybe you justify why you don't need to observe those things. You mitigate them, right? You change them. You lower the requirements. You minimize them or you rewrite what it means to be committed to God because He absolutely does call us to live a different way. Things of the Christian life, there's a whole lot more like forgiveness, things like repentance, things like serving the poor, things like the sexual ethics of Scripture, loving the outsider, setting aside your agenda or plan for the sake of others, things like worship, things like loving your neighbor. That's a lot. That's a lot of commitment. That's a lot of devotion. Right? You just want to enjoy this. But you don't want the challenge of devotion. This is what this is. These are the people who read David Platt's... Uh, I, these books are actually good. I'm talking about the people, way people read them. David Platt's Radical or Francis Chan's Crazy Love and go, that's awesome, that's awesome, that's awesome, but don't change. Right? Love the experience of how powerful it was to read those great books. And you're not a different person. Love the experience. Don't want to be challenged by the commitment to follow Christ. And what I want to argue tonight is both of these postures, devotion with no sweet intimacy and trying to experience sweet intimacy with no, but with, without devotion, neither one of them are really relating to God in the way He intends you to. And you will burn out. Because those are no, to live in either one of those places is no grounds for, for retaining any kind of healthy relationship. Relationships can't exist in either one of those arenas very long at all. In some ways, you fundamentally kind of haven't understood the order or the structure of how God relates to His people. And I want to suggest that both of these phenomenon are actually addressed in Leviticus 2 and 3. This is the solution here. This is how God has answered that phenomenon. And the first offering that we talked about is the grain offering. I left out some verses there. If you're here with us last week, you know that... God actually sets up the offering and He gives socioeconomic levels for it. And that's what I left out uh, this week was the other areas where if you have this much money to afford this offering, offer this. But if you don't, you can offer this. And if you don't, you can offer this. So that's what I left out if you saw their verses missing. But I want to look at the elements of the grain offering that are different from the burnt offering we looked at last week. And the first thing is what it's called. The Hebrew word here is called the mincha offering. It's a word that's actually used all throughout the ancient Near East and other literature. And it's a very, very common idea, actually. That word is, uh, is usually translated tribute or gift offering. And what it references is when a vassal lord makes a gift to their king. So when a lesser lord, a lower lord, a vassal makes a gift to the king and makes a gift to the king for this purpose, to signify his dedication or devotion or commitment to his king. I am yours. I submit to you. Here's how I show my submission. I give you a tribute, a gift, a mincha, 
right? The oil and the incense are used to sweeten the offering to make sure they see that the offering is expensive, right? It's not much of a tribute or a gift or doesn't show much commitment if your offering is your leftovers. So they put oil and incense on it, right? And it says, I am yours. I'm in submission to you. And I want us to look at two, there's two odd elements in here that really continue to draw out what's going on in this offering. And maybe you saw them, there's a couple of ingredients that are addressed. Verse 11, there's this prohibition. Uh, There's to be no honey or leaven in the offering. And it's confusing why there wouldn't be any honey or leaven in the offering until you see what he requires to be in the offering. Right? In verse 13, three times which is a way of highlighting the importance of something. He says, but there's got to be salt. There's got to be salt. There's got to be salt in your offering. And you see, when we see those ingredients side by side, we begin to understand what they are. You see, what honey and leaven do is honey and leaven shorten the shelf life of food. They contribute to the decay of it. Uh, It molds a lot faster. Um, They ferment. Um, And it's as as if God is saying... And this offering, I don't want there to be anything that offers decay or corruption or any kind of diminishment. Within the offering, God wouldn't permit anything that would allow any hint of deterioration. And what it's signifying is undivided whole devotion to the Lord. And you see, salt has the exact opposite purpose, does the exact opposite thing in food, doesn't it? It preserves it, it makes it last. The term shows this, this word, the salt of your covenant, actually shows up elsewhere in Scripture a couple of times in Numbers and other places. When you salt food, you preserve it, you make it last. And what's being built into this bread offering when they're preparing it this way and setting it on the altar is the imagery of the lasting covenant and submission and devotion to the Lord. Bring nothing into it that will decay it, that will break it down, that will corrupt it, that will diminish it. But rather, put something on the altar that lasts, that preserves, that lengthens, that establishes always. We have records of Greek cultures and Arab cultures always talking about salt of the covenant, salt of the covenant, salt of the covenant. And other religions, because it always symbolized ongoing commitment, lasting nature. God's saying there will be no decay, no diminishing, no death, no corruption, no divided allegiance in our offering to the Lord. Rather, there will be a preserving, a long-lasting, always and forever aspect. It's imaged right into the food. Long-lasting, permanent commitment or devotion to the Lord that we submit to Him. Here's the point. God's burning it into their consciousness that there's no relationship without devotion. There's no relationship without commitment, without sacrifice, without submission. And this is true of every relationship. God is saying there is a necessary response. If you get who I am, if you understand the burnt offering, there is a necessary response. Like any friendship, there's no relationship without commitment. It's illustrated in our friendships. You've seen it before, maybe it's you, right? You know a lot of people have a lot of acquaintances, a network of people, and yet you find yourself lonely. Right? You want a lot of friends or community, but you don't have time to sacrifice. Right? Because you've got a ton on your plate, you've got a lot of goals you're pursuing and things you want, and then what happens is maybe you find yourself at times wondering, 
Maybe you're in a hard place and you're wondering, do I, do I really have any real friends? Right? Maybe you find yourself starting to blame others. You look at all these people and you start blaming them. But here's my question. Have you ever asked yourself, what have I sacrificed for others? Have I ever shown devotion to other people? Have I ever shown commitment to them? Have I ever sacrificed on their behalf? Right? And I suggest that maybe if you find yourself knowing a lot of people, but then finding out, you know what, I actually don't make time for people, and you find yourself frustrated, then maybe what you've done is you've sought friendship for yourself. Right? You've approached relationships with kind of a parasitic posture, not willing to give anything to others to relate to them, but rather asking them to relate to you on your terms, right? You want people to make sacrifices for you, but you have too many goals to make sacrifices for them. You actually want intimacy, but you don't want it to require you anything, anything of you, right? I want friends, but don't make having relationships require something of me. So that means when, when relationships get hard, when they're challenging, when they're demanding, you bolt, Right? In, in some sense, what that actually reveals is that we actually don't like people, and maybe we don't even like God. What we really like is we like being liked. So when the relationship starts demanding something, we drift. This is, you want the intimacy, and you want the blessing of friendship, and you want the blessings of God without doing business with God. You don't want it to cost you something. And you're wondering why you feel far from God. When in fact, you refuse to give Him anything. There's no relationship without requirement. There's no such thing as relationship without commitment. There's no such thing as friendship without sacrifice. This is God calling them to a ritual that teaches the necessity of commitment, of devotion, of submitting your life to Him. Paul reiterates this language of the grain offering in Romans 12 when he calls God's people to obedience. He says, listen to the language, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That's your spiritual worship. What does he mean by that? He he spells it out. Here's what it is. Don't be conformed to the world anymore, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. See what Paul's saying? Paul's outlined the gospel for the first 11 chapters of Romans. The saving work of Jesus. And then he says, here's your response. Here's the devotion that is commanded or demanded from you. Right? Relationship entails following after Jesus. It entails devotion. It entails commitment. But before we go on the discussion, I want to look at the peace offering in chapter 3. If you were with us last week, there are a lot of elements that are similar to the burnt offering, so we're not going to talk about those. We're going to talk about the things that are different. And what's different stands out. Verses 3 through 5, you get this weird explanation of these weird parts of the animal's body that are supposed to go on the altar. You see in chapter 1, the entire animal is burned up on the altar. In chapter 3, in this offering that's called the peace offering, the way it's different from the burnt offering is the kidneys and the liver and these fatty parts of the meat are all intended to be burnt up on the altar. So what's happening? How's it different from the burnt offering? Well, these parts, they're specific parts. 
In that culture, they were the finest cuts of meat. Right? The fat of the animal was a reference to the most valuable and the tastiest parts. What's being offered to the Lord is not the whole animal, like it was in chapter 1, but rather the equivalent of the filet mignon, right? the best cuts of meat. And we, uh, the sacrifices are talked about elsewhere. In Leviticus 7, we learn more details about them. And what we learn in Leviticus 7 is what happens with the rest of the animals. So you put all the best cuts of meat on the altar and they're burnt up. Right? And when they're burnt up, they go to the Lord. That's the image, right? It's a pleasing aroma to the Lord. What happens with the rest of the parts of the animal? Well, in Leviticus 7, the priests and the people eat them right then and there. You know what's happening? A feast. It's a festive occasion. The sacrifice is a festive occasion. It's called the peace offering. The, the Hebrew root is that word shalom. Maybe you've heard... And if you've read the Bible at all, the word shalom, it shows up all over the Old Testament. In some ways, it kind of defines maybe God's end goal for creation. It's translated peace in in English, but it's a much fuller conception than that. It's not simply the absence of conflict. Shalom is life the way it was intended to be. Human flourishing, wholeness, restoration, undiminished joy with God and man. The sacrifice image the intimacy and the joy of a family meal. He's saying, I want y'all to participate in a ritual that symbolizes and signifies a family meal, that we're together, that I'm your God and you're my people, and we're happy together. There's joy in our intimacy. And scholars have always seen a link between this and the Lord's Supper. Right? Do you see this? Do you see the purpose of relationship is the mutual enjoyment of each other's presence? The purpose of God's relationship with you is not to get you the grades you want or the spouse you want or the job you want. Though those things might or might not come. The purpose of relationship with God, He's not a vending machine to get the things you want out of life. The purpose is mutual enjoyment with Him. It's intimacy. And relationship involves commitment or devotion, but it also involves intimacy. And that's the point of these two sacrifices together. You can't have one without the other and it be any kind of real relationship at all. See, the bread offering confronted any notion that you can have intimacy without devotion because it was a call to devotion. And the peace offering confronts any notion that you can have devotion and not experience intimacy. And maybe this is you. Maybe you've seen this. Maybe you've experienced this. But it's the I've done everything right plea, Right? To try to have a relationship where there's intense devotion, but there's no intimacy. In friendships, you've never enjoyed them because you've always thought of yourself as the better, more mature friend. Right? You've done everything right in the friendship. You've been devoted. You're kind of a martyr in your friendships. You're the better friend. You kept being committed to people, but you actually never enjoyed your friends. You're relationally busy, you see yourself as a good friend, performing the duties of a good friend, but you see yourself on the outside and your, far, your, your, your heart is full of complaint that everybody else is not a friend to you the way you are to them. And you love your high sense of your devotion, your high sense of self and your friendships, but there's no intimacy, is there? And the peace offering is saying, there's no health in a relationship that doesn't have intimacy. Because what's happening in the peace offering is God is calling the Israelites to practice 
a festive, intimate, joyful meal, the mutual enjoyment of friends eating together. And what you have to see is that both postures, wanting a relationship that has devotion, that has no intimacy, or intimacy with no devotion, they're actually inherently self-focused. I want to enjoy relationships, but I don't want it to cost me anything. Well, then you've never enjoyed relationships, and you've never enjoyed relationship with God. Because the sweetest friendships, one of the key marks of the sweetest friendships, are non-scorekeeping sacrifices. You know what I'm saying? Non-scorekeeping sacrifices? Where levels of devotion are never even graded or scored. On the other hand, those who love the idea of devotion, but are devoid of intimacy or enjoyment, you find yourself thinking, I'm devoted, and because I'm devoted, I deserve certain things. And you see, this posture is also self-focused. It's, I've earned because of the way I've acted, because of the friend I've been, because of my devotion. And you see, both of these escape the very center of relationship fully enjoyed. It's relationship... Uh, relationships tend to be filled with devotion and intimacy, and the delight comes from simply enjoying each other, not asking, what can I get out of this for me? The right ordering of our relationship with God is the chief cause of frustration and consternation in our spiritual lives, I'm convinced. Because if we're going to enjoy the peace of being in Christ... Our relationship has to be structured the right way. And here's what this means. What preceded the grain offering and the peace offering? The burnt offering. What preceded the call to devotion and the call to intimacy? The burnt offering. Chapter 1. The grain offering, the call to follow Jesus, to commit to Jesus, to obey God, to devote yourself to Him... And the invitation of the peace offering, the feast. He doesn't say, I want you to commit to these practices and on the basis of these practices, I'm going to evaluate whether or not you and I are on good terms. See, the grain offering and the peace offering are not preconditions for being with God or being reconciled to Him. And there's a world of difference between the God who says, devote yourself and I'm going to decide whether or not I'm pleased with you based on the sufficiency of your devotion or the joy of your intimacy. There's a world of difference between the God that says that and this God, the true God, who knows the death and frustration of that view. And so gives us life and hope. And He says, this is love. Not that we loved Him, but that He first loved us. Order is vital to having any hope of rich relationship with God. This is love, not that we loved Him, but first, the burnt offering came first. It precedes devotion and intimacy, and devotion and intimacy actually flow from that as a response. Here's the cool thing about these offerings. The the grain offering of devotion and the peace offering of joy, do you know that they're voluntary? They're voluntary. There's never a time in here where it says, here's the day you're supposed to do this offering. Here's the cool thing about them. They're voluntary, but they're inevitable. And what happens is when you read the Old Testament and see the burnt offering take place, you know what almost always happens afterwards? 
people think this burnt offering is so awesome, we should devote ourselves to the Lord and we should party together. <laughs> Literally, we call it the grain offering and the peace offering. They're voluntary, but when you perform and understand and see the blood of the burnt offering and see how God atones for you, you know what happens? The grain offering and the peace offering just break out. They're inevitable. Without Jesus' blood shed for us on the cross, His saving grace, the final sacrifice, the one that's foreshadowed in the burnt offering, without the freedom and the love given in God's grace and the forgiveness of sin, without that sitting first and central in our hearts, here's what we'd do. We'd look for a relationship with God through devotion, but we'd never have intimacy. Or we'd look for intimacy, but never be challenged by devotion. Neither of which is any kind of basis for real relationship. But, as the burnt offering, the love of Jesus, as it looms larger in our hearts, you will find yourself drawn to devotion because God has been so good. You will find yourself joyful at His table as you feast as a member of His family. When the writer of Hebrews, chapters 9 and 10 are really his explanation of the first seven chapters of Leviticus, you should read those. But when he concludes his explanation in the 10th chapter at the end, and his explanation of how the burnt offering was a teaching tool that pointed us to Jesus, he closes with this. He says, Now, because we do have access with God by virtue of Jesus' blood, because of that, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. You hear that? This is the business of devotion to the Lord. Because of who, what Jesus has done, let us stir up each other in devotion to the Lord, to love and good works. But he doesn't stop there. He says, and also, let us not neglect to meet together. Let's enjoy the intimacy of being with our family as we were with our Father. <clears throat> and here's the frustrating thing. Our hearts are still slow to get it, aren't we? It makes sense. It absolutely makes sense. But our hearts are slow. But here's also the good news from the Lord. He's slow in anger and He's abounding in steadfast love. You know what the Israelites did? They, they, they did the burnt offering and they're like, this is amazing. And peace offering and, and grain offering would break out. Right? And their hearts are slow like ours. And so you know what they did? You know what God was okay with and God was patient with? They did the burnt offering again tomorrow. Because they forgot. Because they were distracted. And the Lord is patient. And I'll close with this. And there are a lot of great churches that I know a lot of y'all go to. But here's one of the reasons I love grace. Um, my best friend's the pastor there. But even beyond that, you know what they do at grace every Sunday? You come into grace and you confess sin. It's the first thing that happens. Sounds not cool. You confess it and then you hear that Jesus forgives. You know what they're doing? They're rehearsing the burnt offering. You know what happens after you confess sin and hear that Jesus forgives? Then the preacher gets up and he tells us how God's word challenges us. You know what the sermon is? It's the grain offering. It's the call to devotion. And then you know what happens after the sermon? God's people feast together. We take communion. I need that ritual every single week. We need that ritual Maybe every single day. The Israelites did it morning and evening. It's good news that God is patient, that we are slow to respond to rituals and see in the rituals His patience, His mercy, and His love. Let's pray.